0: Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. Sponsored by Tech Help Boston.
1: If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, share your success story. And that's what this show is all about. I believe that successful women think differently. And by the end of this podcast, I hope you'll agree. The success story you are about to hear has to do with climbing the ladder from receptionist to CEO. In the spotlight, Karen Kaplan, the woman in this gorgeous corner office at Hill Holiday, one of the nation's top advertising agencies, recognized as one of the most influential women in advertising. She oversees Hill Holiday, EP & Company, and Trillium Media. Her rise to the top was, well, I think epic, and women in her field see her as a role model. This is her story. Welcome to the show, Karen. Wow, thank you, Candy. Did you like that introduction? That was lovely. Do you have anything to add? <laughs> well, we're going to add a whole lot more as we get to know one another. Thank you so much for having me today in this beautiful office. My pleasure. What a gorgeous day in Boston. You get to be surrounded by all the cityscapes. Does that inspiring?
2: Yes, you know, when we first moved into the John Hancock Tower,
1: 1979,
2: 1980, it was a little bit before my time, Jack Connors was quoted in the Boston Globe as saying, it's impossible to think small in the John Hancock Tower. And so when we moved to this space 10 years ago, we really wanted to have that same view because it's really part of what makes Hill Holiday special.
1: We're settled here into this gorgeous office. Do you ever sit here, Karen, and sort of have to pinch yourself and say, this is real, and and I'm here, and I did this?
2: All day, every day. My arms are all bruised. If I had a sleeveless shirt on, you could tell. I'm constantly amazed at how this happened. I wasn't a person who intended to spend my entire career in one company. I wasn't even focused on advertising at the time. It's sort of not the way I expected things to turn out, but I'm delighted that they did.
1: Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where do you come from?
2: Well, I grew up in Marblehead,
1: about 16 miles
2: north of here. Uh, You can see it if you turn around, it's out that window. Both my parents worked, which we were chatting before. Same with you. Very unusual at the time. We were both the only kids in our neighborhood whose parents both worked. For me, it was the 60s and the 70s. I was a latchkey kid. I learned responsibility at a pretty young age. And importantly, I grew up in a gender-neutral household. My dad was just as likely as my mom to make dinner, to do the laundry, to vacuum. And, uh, and I had a sister. We, I didn't have a brother. and It was very gender neutral, and I kind of had no idea the way the rest of the world worked. And I think that was really, really helpful for me in terms of what I expected for myself and what was expected
1: of me. Did you grow up with an expectation that you could do anything, that the doors were all open for you? Obviously, you've mentioned it was a gender neutral household. So were you told, Karen, you want to be a firefighter, go do that. You want to be the president, go do that. What was it like?
2: It's interesting. Yes, by my mom. So I always say my mother was my "I believe in you" person, and I think everyone needs to have an "I believe in you" person. Absolutely. My mother said, "You can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. Sky's the limit." My dad, who was very supportive, but in a bit of a different way, I used to run home with straight A report card or some sports achievement, and my dad would kind of look at me and say, "You know, Karen." A pat on the back is just six inches from a kick in the butt and I used to think hmm I didn't quite understand I used to think he wasn't being very supportive and then when I got older and I started working I understood that what he was trying to do was make sure that I was humble and that I wasn't too impressed with myself and not too accustomed to success because
1: that's not how life works And And the world is not soft, as my mother used to say. Well,
2: that's exactly it. That's just another way of saying it. And for me, the combination of my mom, who believed in anything I did was wonderful and I could do anything, and my dad, who kind of kept me grounded, was an excellent, excellent combination for me. Tell me about your college experience. What was that like for you? What did you want to do with your life at that time? I had no idea, like many college students at the time, or even today, perhaps, I'll say it was very unfocused. I went, I actually went to four different undergraduate schools in four years. However, let me add that I graduated on time and on budget
1: four different colleges. So I
2: started out at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, which was which is a great school, but I chose it because I followed a boy there, which is probably remember not,
1: that everybody.
2: <laughs> probably not the best decision making. I had a great year, one year there. Grade school, very small. I started off as an English major, switched to languages because I wanted to study abroad my junior year. And unless you were a language major, not everybody was doing that at the time. When I left Colby, my parents said, Well, if you transfer to a state school, we'll buy you a car. Done. First was the boy, then was the car. And then when I went abroad, I studied in Spain and France, and I had to transfer to two different schools because of the particular programs that I wanted to, and then I graduated from UMass Amherst.
1: I was just about to say, so you have a degree on the wall from UMass Amherst. I do, (laughs) in French literature. (laughs) Okay, which Which you use every day. Come in very handy, not. (laughs) So I heard that you were thinking about being an attorney at one time. You wanted to go to law school. I did. I'm... Again, not so sure I was super focused on being
2: an attorney, but at the time, it was the early 80s, I graduated in the middle of back-to-back recessions, it was a terrible W recession, unemployment was terrible double digits in our state at the time. I just really thought it would delay the inevitable in terms of having to get a job, and I thought a law degree, I could practice law, I could go into business politics, a law degree wouldn't hurt, and I just figured I'd get a couple more years to figure it out. I moved home after graduating. I actually lived in an apartment for a short while, ran out of money, moved home. My parents said, well, good for you. You can go to law school just as soon as you've like saved up enough money to begin to pay for it because we're done.
1: Which is a great message to send, right? Yes. So I'm going to guess that you saw an ad in the paper for a receptionist for this company called Hill Holiday. Tell me, how did you find the job, the original Hill Holiday receptionist job? My sister worked at a company, and they're actually
2: in the building next door. It was called something different at the time, but it's Wellington Management now. She was in finance, knew I wanted to get into law, potentially. Wouldn't it be great to have a job for a year in law while saving up money to go to law school? She called me and said, we just hired an HR director, like a chief human resources officer, not an insignificant job, who came from Palin Door, Goodwin Proctor, one of the big white-shoe law firms, wouldn't it be a good idea for you, Karen, to give them a call because they've got an opening and, gee, you're a people person. I ended up calling the recruiter. This is where I was in my life at, you know, 22 or whatever. She said, you know, not you're not quite ready for that. And we were on the phone, so I couldn't see. I think she was literally looking at a list. <laughs> Started with the A's. Is there any other industry you'd have any interest in? I said, I don't know. And she said, how about advertising? And there's this job that for a receptionist at Hill Holiday, Jack Connors, is the CEO at the time is interviewing personally and he has interviewed and rejected forty four zero candidates. So I thought, Okay, I'll meet Jack Connors, nothing bad will come of that. I'm competitive. I kinda wanna see if I can get the job. That was as far forward as I was thinking at the time.
1: And this is a man who would become probably, well, your lifelong mentor. Yes. And a really important person in your life. Yes. Tell us about that interview with Jack.
2: I'll say before we even get there, I showed up early or maybe he was running late, a very busy man, and I had about 20 minutes to sit in the lobby. And I remember that was like a very important 20 minutes because... I observed there were a lot of hallway conversations, chance meetings. Everybody was young. I liked the energy. I liked the vibe. And I started thinking, maybe I, I can do this. I can do this. And maybe I do want this job. I have no memory of the interview. And when, you, when I asked Jack why he... Hired me. He doesn't have any idea. I think he was just exhausted. He's like, Whoever walks through that door next is getting this job. I really don't know. But I started, I was offered the job right away. I think I would interviewed on a Thursday, started on a Monday, and off
1: to the races we went. You know, my experience in radio is very similar to yours in advertising, in that I was hired as the secretary to the program director. When people ask me about my rise in radio, I tell them it took a while mm-hmm. because first impressions are everything. People saw me as the secretary to the program director, so why is she on the air? That kind of thing. So very often when you start at the bottom, the rise is gradual because you keep having to prove yourself over and over again. Tell us about your experience. Well, you do. You really
2: have to prove yourself in reality, but then perceptually, you have to redefine yourself. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I often talk about the hardest thing for me along the way was there were many times where I reported to an individual one day, and then the next day they reported to me. And that's really tricky. I'm sure there are people today who I worked with in their early 80s who probably can't believe I'm CEO, who, you know, haven't seen me in 30 some odd years. But that To me, having had that experience, and I'm sure you uh, feel the same way, I always give people a chance to redefine themselves. I'm not about labels or titles. I don't know who reports to whom here half the time. I just sort of judge you on the merits of what you're doing at the time.
1: That leads me to my next question, Karen. I'm a big believer in talent will not be denied, Mm -hmm. and the cream always rises. How do you tell someone that has got talent?
2: For me, I I talk about there are three characteristics that I look for in the background of the person, what job they're looking for. You've got to be curious, you've got to be open, and you've got to be collaborative. And if you're curious, open, and collaborative, I can teach you everything else. Those are the kinds of people that I look for. And again, that to me allows you to be open to redefining yourself, to unlearning things that you might have learned along the way before you can learn new things. I think humility is incredibly important. I think empathy is incredibly important. We have a lot of fun with the double H's of Hill Holiday. So we describe our culture and our people as hungry, humble, and human, which I think is just another way of saying curious, open, and collaborative. That's the success criteria.
1: When you look back on your career over all of these years, give me a couple of the big, major stepping stones receptionist to blah to blah to blah give me just a a little version of how that went i have to say there were small stepping stones and
2: you candy were a step ahead of me i had the hardest time getting the second job because i didn't have secretarial skills there was no email there was no voicemail there was no fax machine you had to know how to type 80 words a minute. You had to take dictation. I took three typing classes, one in high school, one in college, and one when I was the receptionist here. I still don't really know how to type. I have to look at the keys. I really struggled. The second job was the hardest job for me to get. Finally, there was one position that became available that was traffic assistant. It's a job you probably well know it. Working in radio, it doesn't exist anymore. I guess it would be project management today. But it was actually part of the creative department. There was one big thing every week I had to type, which was called the traffic sheet. So it was 16 pages, double-sided, stapled. And really, you were just updating the status of every project in the agency. And then you had to copy it. And it had to be on everyone's desk by 830 Monday morning. It was sort of the Bible that we all lived and died by. We had one Wang word processor in the entire agency and it was located outside my boss's office in the hallway in plain view. Unfortunately, fortunately, in order to get the job, I didn't exactly lie, but she said, can you type? And I kind of said, huh, can, can I, I type? type? <laughs> Which I didn't really answer, but I think she got the impression I could. So you to have to come in on the weekends and all day Saturday I would type it and all day Sunday I would copy it if I may, tell you a little story that sort of propelled me forward for for decades.
0: Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Almazian, president of Tech Help Boston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore, and we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust TechHelpBoston.com. To keep your computer and systems running right, call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com. While you're enjoying the story behind her success, I'd like to jump in for just a moment and tell you about another podcast about success that you might like. It's called The Language of Business. The goal is to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. You'll hear from a wide range of entrepreneurs about tactics that lead to success and about tactics that don't. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business the Language of Business podcast, available in the same place that you found the story behind her success. Thanks for listening. Now, back to Candy.
2: I came in one of the first weekends. I typed in on a Saturday. Came in on Sunday to copy it. And by the way, the copier was the size of a toaster oven. It was not a big copier, and so it was a big job for a small copier. I turn it on. It's You, know, you have to wait, warming up, warming up, warming up, tapping my toe, hand on the hip. And then it turns on, and it's jammed. I've got this very strong sense of social justice. So I'm thinking, well, who the heck went home on a Friday night and left the thing jammed? So I'm flipping open the doors and the orange levers and I'm going to find this offending piece of paper and I, f- I finally find it. And it's, it's like accordion shaped, kind of burnt on the edges and it's like wrapped around the drum and I kind of put two fingers in and I extract it and I, I want to know who. So I put it on top of the copier, and I smooth it out. And it's the salaries of all the senior officers in the company. Now, I grew up in a pretty modest household. When I tell you I didn't know anyone made six figures in the whole wide world, and I remember thinking, "Okay, I could spend some serious time at this place. This This is is a great story. I never told that story until Jack Connors retired in 2006. It's instructive.
1: What's your leadership philosophy?
2: For me, I think
1: the most
2: important trait in a leader is empathy. I don't know whether I came into the job thinking that or I learned it along the way as I had the same 17 jobs everybody my age has had. I've just was lucky enough to have had the Mollet Hill holiday. But I read recently that the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, and I think he wrote a book about it, that he talks about empathy as being the most important characteristic, and I wholeheartedly agree. And if you look at how Microsoft is doing now versus how it did under the previous CEO, who was a brilliant man and very talented, but not as empathetic. I think empathy makes all the difference in the world in terms of how you lead people.
1: We've talked earlier about what an important role Jack Connors played. I have to think that when you got to the place where there was a succession plan, there must have been a conversation with you and Jack. Can you share some of that with us?
2: Jack's successor was a guy named Mike Sheehan, who was my boss. Mike was CEO for 10 years and I was president.
1: But interestingly, Jack
2: kind of made both moves at once. Mike and I were always sort of bookended together. When he became president of the Boston office, Jack made me managing director of the Boston office. When Mike became our national president, I became president of Boston. When Mike became CEO, I became national president. I'd like to think Mike would have chosen me as his successor. He didn't really have much of of a choice. And so Jack, interestingly, he kind of set up The successor and the successor to the successor. And if you think about he's the only surviving founder and how incredibly important this place that he founded when he was 25 years old with three partners. We're going to be 50 years old on Sunday, this Sunday, May 13th. And we're going to celebrate our 50th anniversary on Mondays. Jack had a lot of. He had you in the back of his
1: mind for a long, long time. You know, as Jack
2: says, you jump from rock to rock and you hope the rocks get bigger and not smaller. And that's kind of my story.
1: You have been instrumental in helping big brands like Dunkin' Donuts, Bank of Boston, Johnson & Johnson, break through what we call the noise of advertising in the marketplace to be seen and to be heard. In your opinion, Karen, sitting where you are now, what is the secret to a great campaign? I have to go back to empathy because I think the
2: same traits that make you a good leader in your company if you can express that in your work for clients. Jack used to say, everybody gets a custom cut suit of clothing. There's no off the shelf solution. Sometimes you look at agencies work and it all looks similar. They have a little bit of a cookie cutter approach or a particular pattern. And at Hill Holiday, every client gets their own campaign. And for that, you really have to get to know your clients, their customers, how they make money. And you really have to be able to figure out How to empathize so that you can craft communication strategies for them that are authentic that you're not sort of imposing something on them america runs on duncan is a great example if you look at starbucks and all the competitive brands only duncan can say america runs on duncan when you go to the parking lot and you see all the pickup truck next to the lamborghini next to the vw bug next to the bmw america truly runs on duncan that tagline was something as an example Only Duncan in their category could say. You couldn't attribute that to any other competitor.
1: Advertising is one of those industries where it's kind of sexy and it's fun and it's creative and it's all those things, but it's also hard work. It's not really nine to five. What do you say to a young woman who wants to to get into this business? What does she need to bring to the table?
2: I think it's a great business for young people because it's a business of ideas And ideas are the great equalizer. Doesn't matter what your gender is, your race, ethnicity, your age. I actually think young people have a tremendous advantage today. When I came up you had to kind of pay your dues and it was you did this for two years and that for two years and you get another stripe on your shoulder and then the next thing. I think we're about the same age so we're digital immigrants and digital natives don't have to learn so much of what we had to learn. And we're really excited about Gen Z. They're getting ready to come into the workplace. They're a little bit younger, but they're the first generation where they just grew up with the technology. Digital, social, mobile communications always existed. And they come in ready to go. You have a tremendous advantage. The playing field is very level right now for young people. If you really pay attention, you have to be careful, because there's so much distraction today. Original ideas require that you pay attention. You can't come up with an original idea while you're texting or watching Netflix or doing a million other things. You've got to really focus. If you can come up with original ideas and you understand how to distribute and implement, this
1: is a great business for you. The next few questions I ask, I ask of everybody who sits where you are today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? So I always pictured
2: myself, literally the image in my mind, that I was in a bumper car. And if I hit a wall, which we all do, I would just sort of picture myself backing up and turning 10 degrees to the right or backing up and turning 10 degrees to the left and just thinking you're going to hit walls, but there's always a way. There's always a way.
1: You have championed many causes. Tell me why some of these are so important to you. For me, life
2: is all about impact. Every night when I go to bed, I think, what impact did I have today? And it could just be kindness that, kind of like a retail impact, one-to-one, kindness that you showed someone, or it could be something that you did for an organization. I gravitate to community service, anything for kids children and families health care I think the arts are great and the environment I think these are all really important things but my focus has always been on really people who for through no fault of their own were kind of dealt a crappy hand in life I think people have no idea what they're capable of and I think a little bit of love and encouragement goes a really long way
1: what do you wish you knew Karen Kaplan when you first got started? And can you pass along a little piece of wisdom to our listeners today?
2: So many things. I guess I don't have a lot of regrets. When I think back, the only regrets I have are around not speaking up, having an idea, but editing myself, which I think women tend to do more than men and younger people tend to do more than older people. I remember countless meetings where I was maybe the only woman in a room having a great idea, editing myself, saying, oh, that's not good enough and not articulating it. And then having somebody say it two seats down from me and everybody applauds and, it, and I would have said it better, by the way. Mine was slightly better, always. And so this idea of editing yourself and self-doubt, it's a really bad thing. I'm a big fan of Ariana Huffington. She calls it the annoying roommate inside our heads. And she says you have to evict the annoying roommate in your head. I would say don't doubt yourself, don't edit yourself, and put
1: yourself out there and put your ideas out there. As we sit here in this incredible office, surrounded by all these creative people as I look around Hill Holiday right now, what is your definition of success at this point in your life?
2: I would have to say it's around impact. I have a lot of mentors, but I mentor a lot of people. And at this point, this deep in my career, my secret around mentoring is that I get more than I give. So I actually learn a lot from my mentees. And it's my pleasure to spend time with people who hopefully I can be helpful to, but then in sort of unexpected ways are always helpful to me.
1: You know, we always need somebody in our lives who is our biggest fan, that person who is an objective third party when they need to be, but who also gives us strength and courage and love when we need it. Who is that person for you?
2: My parents are 85 and 88. They're just having the time of their lives. They live in Southern Florida. They live in a golf community I call the 13th grade. They're very social. my mom and dad just still inspire me and their marriage is amazing and my husband and I are going to be celebrating our 35th wedding anniversary in August and so I take a lot of inspiration from my parents who I think have lost track at this point. This has been quite a life hasn't it? Yeah this has been pretty good no
1: complaints. I want to say thank you so much for being my guest this week on the story behind her success Karen Kaplan.
2: My pleasure thank you Candy.
0: Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyO'Terry.com. That's C A N D Y O T E R R Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?